The New Testament reading can be found on the pages in the Church Bible, 1891. The New Testament reading, as we are continuing, is from 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Suffering for being a Christian. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice that when he's participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is, is that me? For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to the faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be with you again this morning, even in the face of this topic. Let us pray. Heavenly take, Father, take my words and speak through them. Take our ears and let us only hear what is from you. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, John Henry Newman was canonized. And uh, when I was a teenager, came from a good evangelical church, we were kind of told that John Henry Newman was a bad thing. He prayed for the dead and wore funny clothes and all of that sort of thing. But actually, uh, he did rattle the cage a bit when he was in the Church of England. He said the church's primary purpose was to praise God and not be an arm of the government. And then when he moved across to the Catholic Church, he told them they were all being too clerical and weren't allowing the laity to take full part in uh, their church. Um, so he calls them all bad, I suppose. But one of the things he left us was his hymn, Praise to the Holiest in the Height, which contains this verse. And in the garden secretly, and on the cross on high, should teach his brethren and inspire to suffer and to die. Paul, firmly placing this talk about suffering in Jesus' own example, this could almost be a kind of commentary on our passage, couldn't it? As were his words when he said, it is not God's way that great blessings should descend without the sacrifice first of great sufferings. If the truth is to be spread to any wide extent among the people, how can we dream, how can we hope that trial and trouble shall not accompany 
its going forth. There's that element, isn't there, of suffering in actually sharing the gospel. And, of course, the intense suffering of Jesus in creating the gospel, as it were. And the last couple of times that I've been exploring 1 Peter with you, there's always been kind of suffering lurking around in the background somewhere. But here, Peter focuses on it. Peter probably wrote this letter um, shortly before or after the burning of Rome and the beginning of the horrors of the 200-year period of Christian persecution. No wonder the suffering of the church was in Peter's thinking and he has things to say about it. So, verse 12, Dear friends, you not be a surprise at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But they were surprised. It came as a shock to some of the early Christians that although the Messiah had suffered, but then been raised to life in great victory and glory, they would follow a time of suffering during which his followers would endure persecution. But there's always been a theme of God's people suffering when they were faithful. Do you remember the list in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 to 38, of the Old Testament people of God? And it taught there about jeers and floggings, chains and imprisonment, put to the death by stoning, sawn in two, killed by the sword. Those are the things that happened to the Old Testament people of God when they were faithful to him. And of course, Jesus himself suffered as you explored a couple of weeks back. The first martyr, Stephen, died within a couple of years of Jesus' death. The church leaders had suffered. Paul, in his missionary journeys, James, the first apostle to be martyred around AD 44. And Jesus himself knew about suffering. And tradition has it, was going to, was crucified upside down, because he felt unworthy to die in the same way as his master. And above all, there were predictions of suffering for the church from Jesus. From John Gospel, chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 9 onwards, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. Brother will betray brother to death and the father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone who will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And again in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me.
Many early Christians were surprised at suffering, and today many Christians are also shocked when the trials and suffering of Christ come into their lives. There's a popular theology which suggests the sun should always shine upon Christians, that our grass should be greener than anybody else's, that we're entitled to a privileged and comfortable life as Christians, the name and claim it brigade. Peter is reminding us here that's simply not true. As we've seen already, Christians will often suffer for doing good. We should not be surprised when fiery ordeals come our way. We're at spiritual warfare with Satan himself. It's not a strange or unusual thing. Even having Jesus' warning suffering will happen does not make suffering easy. But maybe at least it's an indication we're on the right path, even if it's not an easy path when it happens. And that's good to know. At least we know we're in fellowship with Jesus, following our Lord and King. But in what I want to going to say, I don't want to minimize suffering any more than Peter would. There may be people among us here today who are suffering in different ways. But what Peter wants to do is focus on the positive aspects, the benefits of suffering as a Christian. And he instructs us to view our present trials from the perspective of eternity. And at the end of this passage, he talks about the final judgment. And that's the context in which he talks about suffering, the final judgment. Verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Hard for the righteous to be saved. We know that the most righteous person in this place cannot claim a righteousness that's acceptable to God. And it was a hard road that Jesus trod to bring us salvation. But that ultimate salvation, that ultimate forgiveness for what we do wrong, has come to us with the suffering and death and sacrifice of Jesus. And that's something that's given to us. That's an assured thing that can't be taken from us. Knowing this in itself doesn't diminish the impact of suffering when it comes. But we can count it as a privilege to suffer for Christ as we remember that when Christ returns in his glory, we'll have that joy of welcoming our Messiah back again. So the first thing that Peter speaks in the context of final judgment, there is a beyond, beyond our suffering, beyond this life of great joy. But in verse 12, why does Peter talk about a fiery ordeal? And I think it's quite important because Peter here sees the image of a fire as a refining process. Peter started his letter with the passage that you explore when Matt was still here. Can you remember that back that far? At the beginning of the summer. 1 Peter 
6, verse, uh, six verse, one sheet, Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though it's refined by the fire, might result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. Perhaps Peter had in mind when he was talking about the fiery ordeal, when he was talking about refining, the passage that Jesus quotes to him as he predicts Jesus' denial of him. I guess that passage kind of was, would be a, something that would, would actually go pretty deep into uh, Peter's psyche. Remember, Jesus says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And he was talking about how Peter and all the disciples would run away when Jesus was arrested. This passage comes from Zechariah chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third... I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. C.S. Lewis talks about pain in a very famous passage where he says, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This whole process is a refining process, a waking up process to listen to what God is saying to us. And so I suppose the heart of our passage is these next couple of verses, 13 and 14. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Paul links suffering with rejoicing and we've already mentioned that, haven't we, this morning, coming from the prophets as well, a theme there. And... One of the times that I guess we remember about this happening is when Paul and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. There was Peter and Silas who'd been flogged and thrown into the deepest bit of the prison, yet rejoicing and praising and singing hymns to God and witnessing all the other prisoners were listening. And a few minutes later, they're going to have the chance to witness to the jail commander as well. So suffering and rejoicing should come together. And Peter here talks about participating in the sufferings of Christ. That remind, remind us of the verse in the letters of the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 10. 
I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That's actually quite difficult. How do we participate in the sufferings of Christ? Christ suffered to atone for our sins. That was a once for all, that's done and dusted. How can we participate in the sufferings of Christ? There are quite a few different interpretations of what that might mean. But perhaps one of the best ways to understand this is in context of what we call the Messianic woes. The Jews believed in a period of suffering of the Jews before the Messiah came. Christians who'd recognized in Jesus the coming of the Messiah for the first time in Bethlehem came to believe that they would be involved in similar sufferings in his because of his glory when so he returned. So that suffering was kind of transposed, as it were, to Christ's second coming when he comes as Messiah. And that links in, doesn't it, with Paul's theme of this being all in the context of the coming judgment. Peter goes on, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Insulted and bad-mouthed because of the name of Christ. That's actually quite important. You know, there are some Christians who are actually quite difficult. There are some Christians who are very insensitive, they're very arrogant, and Peter doesn't say when you suffer because you're an obnoxious Christian. We all actually ought to be people who are growing to be more like Jesus, and that would be very more lovely. But we're all on a journey, and some of us struggle. But if we have this insulted because of Christ, then the result is blessedness. Tom Wright uh, writes about this passage. The persecutors will lay a charge against you. In other words, that you believe in Jesus, known as Messiah. But at the very naming of Jesus and giving him the royal title, invokes Jesus himself in all his majesty and glory and the curses the persecutor wants to call down on you turn into blessings instead. We're blessed when we're called Christians. That's a blessing. It's a reminder of what we are in Christ. And people who might want to use that as a curse actually find, like a lot of things, are twisted round and it becomes a blessing for us. And then the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That kind of indicates a, an unusual fullness of the presence of the Holy Spirit to bless and strengthen and to give us a foretaste of the heavenly gl glory. And I've mentioned Stephen's martyrdom already. If you remember, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw his face was like the face of an angel. That special presence of God strengthening Stephen for the martyrdom which was going to happen in a few moments time and yet the radiance of God spreading out from him and the Sanhedrin saw it they saw the glory of God 
in Stephen. Peter goes on, if you suffer it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. Again, yes, if we do things wrong, we will inevitably bear the consequences of those. But we're talking here about actually suffering for being a Christian. I'm actually not sure whether evangelicals are into martyrdom quite in the way that some of the other traditions of the church are. But from the earliest centuries, the church has treasured accounts of the joy with which martyrs have endured suffering for Christ's sake. Just one example is the letter from the church of Smyrna in the second century, which describes the martyrdom of of Polycarp. And the proconsul is really quite a nice guy. He's trying to persuade Polycarp to, to just curse God because if he does that, he'll be able to let him off. This 86-year-old man's in front of him, for goodness sake. Take the oath, said the proconsul, and I'll release you. Curse Christ. And Polycarp replies, 86 years I have served him. And he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And tied to the stake, Polycarp prayed to be received by the Lord as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. Believers who suffer for Christ are filled with hope, are filled with that glory of witnessing to what God has done for them, are filled with the glory of God. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. The honest truth is, the sort of suffering that we're talking about here, I don't know whether there's anybody in this church for whom that is a reality. Great God, it never will be. I don't want to suffer. I'm sure you don't want to suffer. We'd much rather live our lives uh, able to witness freely to, to God, to meet here without wondering who's spying on us, whether there's people amongst us who are going to dob us into the authorities. None of us wants that, do we? Maybe, looking at the way society's going, maybe the days are not far off when our children and grandchildren will suffer that. I don't know. Last week's lectionary reading, I occasionally do lectionary readings as well, last week's lectionary reading was the story of the persistent widow who needed justice from the judge, who really couldn't care less. And eventually, her persistence wears him down, and just to shut her up, he gives her the justice she needed. And that's talking about someone who had nowhere else to go. She couldn't get justice any other way, and she was desperate. Women didn't count for much in those days. They were pretty near the bottom of the pile. And she was just throwing herself on the mercy of this guy who couldn't care less until she wore him down with her persistence. We need to bear in mind, as we have already, 
those who are suffering now. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Why? Because they've got nowhere else to go to. Who else can they faith commit themselves to? And it's not them that should be persistent in their prayer as much as us being in persistence in persistent prayer for them. There are people all over the world. You, you know, I, I started making a list and it would go on forever of people who are either directly suffering because they're being thrown in prison, some of them are being martyred, or whose life opportunities, education, health care, because they're Christians, you know, they just don't have them. We need to pray for those people, as well as, I think, praying that we won't be spared the suffering because probably we will actually find that quite difficult to take because we live a fairly uh, privileged Christian life uh, in this country. Let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the witness of those who suffered for you in the past, those who suffered that we can know the gospel. We pray for those who bear witness to you today in difficult circumstances. We pray that you'll touch our hearts to be faithful and persistent in our prayer for them, that may they may show forth your glory in their witness to you. And we pray that for ourselves as well. Thank you, Graham. <clears throat> As I said at the beginning, not an easy topic, but Graham, you really inspired us this morning, so thank you for being with us. Would you please stand? We're going to declare our faith in this loving God who cares deeply for us, so deeply that he gave his son so do you believe and trust in God the Father? <coughs> Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, do you believe and trust in his Son, Jesus Christ? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe and trust in the Holy Spirit? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Matt, would you now please be seated, and we come to our time of intercession and prayer.
Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we prayed at the beginning of this time together, we give you thanks and praise for all those who speak out boldly for the gospel. And we pray especially today for those who are suffering as a result of their faith. Strengthen them, we pray, and keep us faithful in our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. And we pray for all those, we thank God for all those who've shared their lives and their faith with us. We pray for all who teach the faith, for the folk next door with the youngsters, for all preachers, ministers, evangelists, for the theological colleges and the teachers of RE. We thank you, Father, that we are still free to proclaim your word, to learn from it, to read it. We pray that that will be a strength in our land to bless not just this nation, but the nations of the world. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. We pray for all who are working for peace in our world, for all who stand up for those who are being exploited, for those with vision to, who seek to care for and conserve our planet. We pray for ecologists, for all who work on the land, for all research workers and scientists. We pray that you will strengthen them and inspire others to bless and keep this wonderful life and land you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray for our local community. We thank you for those who share our lives with us, who are dear to us, who are good neighbours. May we too be good neighbours, and we pray especially for those who are estranged from their loved ones and friends who may be lonely. We pray that you will build up the community life here in Southbourne, that this will be a place of joy and fellowship. Through Jesus,